What is going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to the Complete Center's Guide. I am your host, Tyler Fowler. And, well, we have Andrew Elliott and Dr. Edward Dalcor to talk Oneness Pentecostal, or Jesus-only, theology. So, gentlemen, what is going on? How are you all doing tonight? Good, good. Delighted to be here. I, I'm yeah, super absolutely. stoked that... I'm super stoked that Dr. Edward Dalcor is here with us. So quick story, just real quick message or I added you as a friend on Facebook um, today, message me back. And now we have him with us on CSG. So this was very fast, very, very fast. So we really appreciate you taking your time out of your busy schedule to be here. uh, Dr. Dalcor. Thank you so much. But Andrew, my man. So we have been planning this conversation for a little bit now. So why don't you go ahead? um, For those who don't know you, Andrew, introduce yourself. You were a Oneness Pentecostal for 25 years. We were talking um, with uh, Dr. Dalcor off air. And so give just a little brief history of, of your experience with the oneness pentecostal movement 25 years is a long time brother and then in 2018 you came out of the movement so let and we're going to be getting into not not necessarily why but just theological implications of oneness theology and what it is exactly so andrew go ahead brother take it away Perfect. Thank you, Tyler. Um, So yeah, my name is Andrew Elliott. I'm 29 years old, was in the oneness movement for about 25 years. And as you said, Tyler, yes, around the end of 2018, um, I finally made the decision to renounce oneness doctrine and embrace the Trinity uh, publicly. So I am a fifth generation in my mother's side of my family, fifth generation oneness Pentecostal. Um, So I guess maybe the first generation dates back to around when the Azusa Street revival was happening. I'm not sure. But regardless, uh, what what had happened is I was affiliated with um, one of the larger known organizations in the oneness movement, the United Pentecostal Church International. And when I was living in Dallas, uh, it was just my wife and I. Um, that's, that's really the only friends we had were people who uh, went to these oneness churches with us. And we were actually helping a church plant. Um, so after being with one small church that was trying to get up off the ground um, by an even larger UPC church up, up the city in Dallas, mm-hmm. um, you know, s- spending countless hours being there before service, after service, setting up, tearing down, you know, going out to eat, really having true friendship uh, with, with the pastor and some of the staff at the church. Um, we were, we were addressed about, Holiness standards, which actually is not going to be covered that much in tonight's live. Tonight, I really want to tackle the theology and the yeah. heresy of oneness, not the cultural side of mm-hmm. attending a oneness church. But because my wife would not wear a skirt rather than pants, we were told that we could still attend, um, but we could no longer be in leadership or serve in ministry. And um, just the interaction. Wow. Yeah, it the way they looked at me with almost this lifeless look in their eyes and said, Andrew, when you decided that women wearing pants was okay, can you really say you were as close to God as you've ever been? And that, that level of just zealous commitment to ideals that are not found in scripture, it really struck me to my core existentially to the point where, okay, am, have I been raised in a lowercase C cult, a heretical cult and that shaking of my worldview and that church hurt, yeah, that's how it got started. But then it was about a year-long, just travailing, very intense process, a lot of tears, a lot of doubt, 
a lot of prayer, study, watching debates. And um, after about nine months to a year, uh, I had just finally said to myself, I can't deny the Trinity any longer. And what's crazy about all of this is the three main debaters that I watched. I was just telling Dr. Dalcor before we started. Uh, the three main debaters that I watched that really helped sway me exegetically to the Trinity um, were Dr. James White, uh, Sam Shamoon, and Dr. Eddie Dalcor. His debate with Stephen Ritchie. I came. So, I started that debate on YouTube so confident because back then I bought into the hype and the Pentecostal you know, growl in the voice and the emotions. Yeah. I thought Stephen Ritchie was going to dominate Eddie Delcor and uh, qu- quite to the contrary, praise to the triune God. So that's a little bit of my story uh, abbreviated, but I'm so sure. glad we're making this happen. And I'm so glad last minute that God sovereignly predestined before the foundation of the world to have Dr. Edward Delcor on with us. He I, did. That's yeah. such a treat. <laughs> Amen. Amen. So, Andrew, real quick, um, before I introduce uh, Dr. Delcor, so it sounds like was that the, whenever they approached you about your wife, was that kind of the start of a of a downhill slope for you, so to say? Or what was the what was the primary thing that really got you focusing? Maybe oneness doesn't have it figured out. Well, Growing up in that strict apostolic UPC culture, mm-hmm. I had always known that they were legalistic, but I had sure. never been shaken to my core that profoundly to question the movement as a whole. So I would mm-hmm. actually, uh, in passing, I, there would be times where I attended independent oneness churches that had left the UPC and they were more relaxed on dress standards. You know, that's that's one of the biggest reasons they left the movement. Sure. But this church. Um, started out like that. So I'm Mm -hmm. like, cool, I'm in good company, even though they're licensed with UPC. And they had this long talk with the the pastor that was funding them, the larger Mm -hmm. church. And I think what it came down to behind the scenes is they were being threatened to have uh, their church plan and all their equipment taken from them if they didn't adhere to these dress codes. So just seeing that sort of hypocrisy And after everything I had been through with that guy, yes, that shook me on an emotional level. But at the point, again, like I said, that made me just go to ground zero and say, okay, I'm willing to set all of this on fire and see what's still there when it's over. And when I did that, when I went to the scripture to set oneness on fire, it burned in all of its brazen ingloriousness. Thankfully, in in the Trinity came up out of the ashes. That triune phoenix rose, brother. So that's That's awesome. (laughs) Dr. Edward Dalcor, so this is your first time on CSG. So for those who don't know you, um, give a, just like kind of like Andrew, give a, you know, brief explanation of yourself. um, And yeah, take it away. Um, I I, I started ministry early in the 90s. And um, Mm -hmm. it's really interesting. One one reason why I started in the area of apologetics was because Jehovah's a Jehovah's Witness came to my door. Okay. And I was a, I was a little cocky being brought up in a Baptist church. I knew about the deity of Christ and the Trinity and all these things. Yeah. However, what they what they presented, um, Jesus is firstborn, um, uh, a God in John one, and all these things I didn't know how to answer, and mm-hmm. I really felt inadequate. So that really led me on a road, uh, which led me to all. A, a vast area of theology. And then in the nineties, I was in a, for about 10 years, I was in an athletic ministry. We travel around the world, do all these 
big crusades, these, all these feats of strength and yeah. kind of revivals, you know. But um, toward the end of the 90s, I started getting serious um, or more, I would say, more myopic at, in terms of what I what I do. Mm-hmm. And by the way, it was in the late 90s that I met James White. And I, I, I invited him to one of our crusades. And he didn't believe me that I was on this because it was a well-known team athletic ministry and he didn't believe me i said yeah just bring your kids you know we had we all had aol that was the only thing around right and um, i didn't know him but i i, I met him because I, I saw some typos in his book and i just mm-hmm. on american online remember those chat rooms they used to have that's right and we became friends because he, he didn't believe me. he said okay come over to my house we'll go work out you know he was calling my bluff and i went you know we went to arizona and uh we've been friends ever since so we have a, a long history um amazing but yeah, so from then on, um, I really did rest on the area of not just apologetics, but Christian education as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that apologetics is a much needed, a much mandated area, but also, um, you know, there's other doctrines of the Bible um, aside from apologetics and polemics. And as teachers, we need to be well-rounded, not to be just be limited in the area of apologetics. And I always tell people where apologetics starts is having a firm foundation on your faith. So when you don't know how to defend the gospel um, to a Jehovah's Witness or to a Mormon, really you should learn first before you go out there and try to conquer oneness doctrine, you know, or these other areas, you need to learn your gospel for, you need to learn the essentials of theology first before you go into debate, before you go into other areas, have a set foundation and a lot of Christian folks, um, Sometimes they're strong in the Trinity, but they're very weak on justification or they're strong on justification. Um, I would like, you know, Calvinist friends. Um, and yes, I, I, I'm a good Calvinist. But I have a lot of friends. That they're so strong on soteriology, but then they're, you know, they're still using analogies for the Trinity. You know? mm. So we need to be well-rounded. We need to have a set foundation because that's where it starts. And it's we're not talking complexities here. We're not talking about things and uh where unless you have a coherent knowledge of languages you just you know can't present anything no that's not true i always point this out um allowing the bible to read for itself in any recognized translation is sufficient in and of itself to affirm our christian faith Mm -hmm. amen now i teach i teach uh, full-time um at two i say two and a half because one is a um it's in London, uh, Greenwich School of Theology. I'm a mentor there, oh, but um, I teach regular once a week at a seminary in Los Angeles, and then I'm on the board of another seminary and in charge of literature, uh, Grace Bible University up in Northern California. Wow, amazing! Well, thank you again so much for taking the time to out of your busy schedule to be here uh, with us tonight to discuss oneness theology. So, gentlemen, um, I'm going to go ahead and just ask it. How would you both, and we'll start with Andrew, but how would you define oneness Pentecostalism? Or or let me ask this from the get-go. Is this a Pentecostal movement in and of itself, or are there oneness theologians that actually aren't Pentecostal? I would say that that would have been true maybe in the early church time when modalistic monarchianism, Sabellianism, Praxianism, all the names for the exact same heresy were coming on the scene. Um, although I know that it interweaved itself into the Montanist group, which Montanist group were basically the, the prototype for the NAR uh, back in their time. 
But today, oneness theology is held mostly within that Pentecostal movement because it resurfaced in the 20th century at the Azusa Street Revival, um, people who uh, revived it. And when I say revived, I don't necessarily mean they innovated something brand new. Uh, if you've ever seen this book before, it's called The Apostolic History Outline. When I was 15 years old, we uh, at my oneness church had taken affiliation with a oneness Bible college. And that was one of our required readings was the apostolic history outline. And they'll try to strenuously defend that uh, Zeus street and the oneness Pentecostal uh, resurfacing in America in the 20th century was not an innovation. It was a continuation of had what had already just been going on. And of course the oneness movement, they defend themselves as the church started by Jesus Christ in 33 AD, but to, uh, yes, uh, to answer that question today, the majority of oneness proponents are uh, Pentecostal in their culture and their experience. Um, and worldwide, there are upwards of 25 million constituents. So just like uh, Dr. Dalcor said, being a, a approached by that Jehovah's Witness and not really having the answer, I, I think given that it's Pentecostal in culture, it's hidden in plain sight. A lot of them are starting to change their church signs from apostolic or Pentecostal to a non-denominational sounding church. And this doctrine is trying to be synonymized or made synonymous sounding with orthodox theology. And it's going under the radar. But so many people, since it's so aloof and so unknown, when people are hammered by oneness proponents with all of these verses taken out of context, just like Dr. Dalcor with the Jehovah's Witness, they don't know how to respond. So let's define our terms. Oneness theology, in essence, is the belief that with there being only one God, the presupposition is that that one God is uh, individually one in person, and Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Word, any other title is just that, a title. They would say they believe in one God in three manifestations. So that that plays into the modalistic language or the modalistic monarchianism. A popular phrase that I heard growing up was that he's the father in creation, the son in redemption, and the Holy Spirit in regeneration. And as a consequence of their doctrine, they deny the eternal existence of the son they say that jesus christ only existed well at, at times they'll say he existed as as god the father the one true god and then other times where they really catch themselves in a trap is they'll say that he existed as the word because they have to try to be consistent with john one and uh, there's a really good argument around that that i want to get to later but yes essentially oneness theology is one god that one god is unipersonal and in his unipersonality there are three modes or manifestations of his existence. And those manifestations are really titles of how he interacts with his creation and the redemption of his people. Gotcha. Thank you so much for that. Because really what we're talking about, it goes beyond strict Unitarianism, right? Their view of God, their view of the nature of God really does damage. And we'll see this later on the theological implication, you know, kind of segment, but it does damage to the gospel. Whenever you view Jesus, whenever you view God as one being, one person, it really does damage to the gospel itself. And so, Dr. Dalcor, would you add anything to what Andrew said uh, to that? Yeah, a couple of interesting 
and I always make this point, fundamentally, one is, one is theology, Islam, Jehovah's Witnesses, Unitarians, Christadelphians, they have the same concept of God that he's unipersonal. It's all the same. Islam and oneness have the same foundational ontological presentation of a unipersonal God. Mm -hmm. And that's where it starts. And we have to be prepared to uh, deal with the arguments of one God because they will slip in their hidden assumption. One God means one person. Monotheism means unipersonalism. I want to say, though, for anyone listening who may be charismatic or Pentecostal, when we say oneness Pentecostal, we're not including professing Christian Pentecostal. There is a difference. The Foursquare Assembly of God, they're, they're Christian denominations. So I don't want to confuse those, those issues there. Um, but then there's oneness Pentecostal, like a, like a T.D. Jakes. In fact, um, uh, Andrew, you used one of the, uh, actually, uh, Sibelius, I think, for, first uh, coined that phrase to describe oneness or his, his modalism. Uh, Father in creation, Son in redemption, Holy Spirit in recreation or regeneration. T.D. Jakes used that. And a lot of oneness will use that. And that sometimes that's a red flag if you're going to, you know, investigating churches. You know, I, I would say go to their website, go to their doctrinal statement uh, of a non-confessional church. And if you see language like manifestation or language like uh, he's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you know, with no differentiation, differentiation of an article, um, you know, these things do matter. It's probably a oneness if they're using manifestations rather than persons. Um, but, you know, it, the reason why oneness theology is, is somewhat separated from Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons to most Christians is because they, unlike other Unitarians, like so-called biblical Unitarians, mm -hmm. and aside from Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, oneness theology asserts Jesus is God. Now, just hanging there, that statement, Jesus is God, it, it doesn't mean much unless you define the terms. We say Jesus is God. So when they say Jesus is God, um, unless you understand what oneness is and or have a dialogue with him, you don't know how they see that phrase, Jesus is God. And simply how they see it is Jesus is the, the name of the Unitarian God and the Unitarian deity that comes out in different modes. But Jesus is God only in the sense before Bethlehem, he was in the father mode. He was the father. So only the father is God, as virtually all Unitarians would agree, only the father is God, except this, this mode, the father came down and he became, at least took a body, and now you have Jesus as two modes in one body, which is flat out Nestorianism. Keep in mind, though, not all oneness are in agreement to a lot of different issues. Sure. There's no, because there's no oneness creed out there because there's no oneness confession, you know, historically, because mm -hmm. the entirety of the, the early church rejected it. But because of this, you have churches that like the UPCI, United Pentecostal Church International, that may have a different view than someone like Stephen Ritchie or other oneness believers, particularly John 1, 1. you have oneness authors believing different identities of the word. Uh, Richie actually thought those were two persons. Um, he had a very strange view. Mm. But what I'm saying, there's no, there's no agreement sometimes in some of the passages, but they all agree that Jesus is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He's Father slash Holy Spirit in his deity, and he's Son, who is not the deity, mm -hmm. Son in his humanity. Um, great question I asked, one is Pentecostals. Who is the speaker in John 
uh, I think it's a great question in John 8, 24. Who is the speaker? Who is, who is saying that in John 8, 24? Because you have, I think, and it's interesting that the responses I get, which is, aren't really responses. They normally go to other passages mm-hmm. because the speaker says, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Well, the speaker, yes, Jesus, but when you look at the referential identity, he differentiates himself all over John 8 from the father. Right. You can't say it's the father speaking because in the next few verses, you know, he talks about his father in the verses before. Um, clearly, this is the son. How is it that the son who represents only humanity in one is doctrine can say, unless you believe that I am, you'll die in your sins. So, and I think that, and I mentioned it before, that is the weakest point of oneness theology passage that show Jesus was unipersonal and full deity. Right. And for those who don't know, who don't have it in front of them, I have John 8, uh, 24 in front of me. And it goes, thus, I told you that you will die in your sins for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And I think that's a great point that you make, Dr. Dalcor, because whenever oneness Pentecostals are speaking about father and son, and you guys have already touched on this a little bit, but the father, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the father is the divine nature and the son is the human nature. So if they say the son is speaking in this passage, they're saying that human nature is technically divine, right? Yeah, they, they won't admit that, that then sure. you know, but, you know, you look at the next verse, I think it's 25 or 26. Jesus said, you know, uh, uh, these things I told you, he says, uh, but the father who sent me is truthful. Mm-hmm. All through John 8, you have a differentiation. And then in verse 28, right. the same speaker, when you lift up the son of man, then you will know that I am. He says it again. Right, right. Andrew, anything you want to add to that? Yes, there are going to be some really good interactions later where we actually take the words father and son and replace them with divine nature and human nature. Mm-hmm. And again, oneness cannot stand up to context. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that's the thing. It, the, the strategy again of the oneness Pentecostal is to take so many verses and we've got a list of them. They'll start at Deuteronomy six and four, Isaiah 44, six, Isaiah nine and six. Um, John 1, 1, John 1, 14, John 1, 18, Acts 2, 38, Colossians 2, 9. And they put all of those together out of ignoring the context from whence they came. Mm-hmm. And then you have the amalgamation of oneness doctrine. And to the unsuspecting lay person who attends a Trinitarian church, they've never heard anything like this. They've never considered it. And they're so caught off guard by it. And that's why I'm hoping we can put these individual verses back in their context, read them in the passages from whence they came to understand Mm -hmm. that the father-son relationship is not one of two natures or this um, proto-Nestorianism, but it's two divine persons interlogging with one another. Right, right. And so before we get to the, the verses, I think we'll start with Matthew 28, 19. But I want to focus on this concept of the word. Dr. Dacor, you brought up John 1, 1 in your debate with Stephen uh, Ritchie. And there was this concept of the word that, and I'm really confused by it. So please forgive me if I'm if I stumble through this. But is there in some sense where oneness would say that the word is not the son, but the son preexistent? Does that yeah, make sense? Um, I won't say all oneness because it's, sure. it's simply not true because they um, particularly older authors see the word as something different than other um, other um, oneness Pentecostals. Uh, the word basically in a oneness 
theological construct is not a person. They deny that there's a distinct person, but rather it's a concept in the Father's mind. It's a plan, meaning the Word was with God. That's how they define John 1, 1, B. The Word was with God, and the Word was the Father. You know, that's how they would look at it. So the Word is just a concept. Okay. Um, now, a couple, a few problems with that. Um, number one, John's background of the Logos, I think it comports with the Targum um, of the Memra of God, the Word of God in the um, in the Targum all over the place in the Old Testament, but sometimes you don't have time to go through all those nuts and bolts. But the fact of the matter is, John 1, 1, what tells us, what defines John 1, 1 is the content of the prologue. Um, because what refutes simply Again, most one is Pentecostals, Jehovah's Witnesses, they don't know Greek, you know, so if you, if you get grammatical with them, they're going to think you're lying and you've been polluted by the Roman Catholic Church and all those things, you know, to believe in sure. something that was invented at, at Nicaea. Um, why we say the word is a is a person, not a concept. Number one, scholarship's on our side. Mm-hmm. That's, a, you know, it is. It's, it's on our side. Right. All the recognized, you know, historically, the recognized scholars and contemporaneously um, see the word as a person. Mm-hmm. All the lexicons see the word in John 1 as a person. Um, Lenski, a, a person, the presence of God in John 1. But what refutes the word, the concept view, is John applies in, John, in the prologue personal attributes. Um, in verse 3, he's presented as creator. And we'll see this, uh, and we should touch on this later. The way John presents it, um, grammatically shows he's the agent. The word, the son, is the agent of creation. But look at the personal attributes. In verse 4, the word is life, the light of men. This can't be a concept. Now, here's, I think, the two uh, or three most important verses of the content that erases the idea of a concept. John the Baptist, it says in verse 6 and 7 and verse 15, John the Baptist testifies of the word. And if you look in the narrative, John was interacting with a person who is the word in John 1, 1. John's interacting. He says, he didn't say, behold, the concept of God who takes away the sins of the world, but he interacted. He testified of a person. And then in verse 14, the word became flesh. Um, and we saw, he dwelt among us. We saw the glory of the monogonous. Now that adjective is not used of concepts anywhere. It's only used of persons from monogonous. Um, from the Father, full of grace and truth. And in verse 18, it's a slam dunk. In verse 18, and we, we'll look at some of the um, as- exegetical aspects of this, but when it says no one's ever seen God except the one and only God or the monogamous ta'as, some, some Greek editions later have one and only son or only begotten son, but it doesn't change the semantic of the participle after it, who is always... In the bosom of the father, he has made the father known or exegeted the father. So in verse 18, you can't squeeze out a concept. This was a person who's always at the bosom of the father. The word bosoms only applied to persons in the, of all, I think, eight times it's used, Mm -hmm. uh, six or eight times, only applied to persons except one time in Acts where it's applied to obey. It denotes intimate fellowship, just like cross in John 1, 1, you know, the word was with cross, ton, theon. Um, so the content erases the idea that it's a some kind of concept. It's the content of the prologue, verses 1 through 18. And then, of course, 
um, in First John, he makes this, you know, he says that we, we touch what we saw, which we feel, right. the word of life. So John gives a commentary in First John um, 1, 1, and, and 2, and then in Revelation 19, it's a person that right. the apostle saw. Right. And just so, so just to kind of touch on that and piggyback on it a little bit, to me anyway, as a Trinitarian, <clears throat> to me, I don't know how a concept, how a, a, a mere idea or pre, or, or I'm sorry, after the incarnation, post incarnation, how a mere human nature can exegete the Father, can explain the Father in such a way that. I mean, that nothing else can. The, does that make sense? Because if they're saying that the Son is the the simple human nature of Jesus, and the Word is a mere idea, well, then how in the world does Jesus, the Son of God, exegete the Father in the way that John describes him in verse 14, right? right. Or, or in verse 18. 18. So, um, but yeah, Andrew, uh, is there anything that you wanted to add to uh, what Dr. Dalcor said? Getting into that, and I don't want to take away too much from later, Uh, Jesus had to be divine. He had to be the God man because statements like John 8, 24, or even statements like John 17, 5, uh, or even John 5 as a whole chapter, I don't do anything of my own will. I only do what I see the Father doing. To put Mm -hmm. those words, those affirmations, those proclamations on the name of even the best prophet from the Old Testament, Isaiah, Ezekiel, um, Jeremiah, to put those words on their lips, they'd automatically be blasphemers. Mm. They received partial revelations to speak from God. Jesus had full intimacy and access to God the Father to in, in order to accomplish his perfect will, and that shows that he must be divine. For a, a, a created being to only be the human nature as the Son and to have complete revelation and to be able to completely exegete the Father, <laughs> if he's just a created being, he would explode. <laughs> he can't contain that. You know what I mean? Yeah, I wanted. I do want to say one more thing on John seventeen five. Uh, T.D. Yeah. Jakes and David Bernard are both on record. John seventeen five. Jesus says, "Now, Father, uh, glorify me with the glory I have with you, or the glory that we shared before the world was." They both actually say that Jesus preexisted as the Word, and Jesus is really just saying, "Father, bring everything back to what you had planned." Mm-hmm. So again, we see more of that plan, that concept view of the Logos present in John seventeen five, completely decimating and ignoring the context from, I'd say, verse one to verse six. Right, right. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, I, I was going to say also, and you, you made a good point, Andrews, Unitarians, all, all of them, um, uh, the vast majority, at least. Context is not their friend. They do not want to speak about the context. They don't want to admit. A lot of times, smart Jehovah's Witnesses want to get a a couple grammatical points, for instance, where Jesus is said to be the creator of all things, like in Colossians 1.16 and 17, and they'll point out to the passive and why um, if he was a creator, it should be active, you know, those kind of arguments. But they deny or they don't want to they're silent when it comes to the context of why Paul wrote Colossians. It was an anti-Gnostic polemic to say that Jesus was just a helper of sorts, wouldn't do anything to Paul's argument. But um, yeah, they don't like context. And the context of in John's literature clearly presents a multi-personal God. He sees Jesus as, he sees the son as truly God. Sometimes with one as Pentecostals or more than not, 
I like to use the word son, um, because if I say Jesus is God, they, they will say amen. So if you say the son is God, then the whole thing changes. Um, they denied the son's words in John 8, 24. The son said, unless you believe that I am God, you will, deny, you'll, you will die in your sins. In John 17, 5, um, the it, in, entire prayer, di he differentiates himself from the father. It's the son speaking here. It's the son praying. He says, Father, he says, now glorify me, Father. Interesting, the word glorify there. The verb is what's known as an arius imperative. Normally, an arius imper imperative moods, to simplify, are, are commandment moods. You have a whole lot of them. You know, when someone issues a command, when Paul commands the church to do this or do that, um, they're in an imperative mood, uh, typically. But there's something called an arius imperative, which denotes a, a urgency. It stresses urgency more than any other linguistic command, any other imperative. When you have an arius imperative, it, as Wallace says, it's a do it now verb, do this right now. Strongest way to stress urgency. Normally it's used in commands, right? In commands. The imperative alone could be used in request or command, but the arius is normally used in commands. The son is using doxason, an arius imperative to the father. He's directly addressing the father. The word patir is in evocative case, direct address. How is it that the son, if he's not God, if he's not truly God, how is it that he can use a commandment to the father? Same with the same term is used in John 17, 1. It does the same thing. Um, glorify me now, father, with the glory I had, right? The glory together with yourself. So now he, he's affirming that he shares glory, parasa alto, with yourself. Mm -hmm. um, and that glory... Uh, I think you made that point, Andrew. It says a a con. The word, uh, the verb a con is an imperfect tense. It's an ongoing, repeated action. Here's what that means. Um, as Vincent points out, he always possessed that glory. It's an imperfect tense here. He always possessed that glory. And when did he always possess that shared glory? I remember Richie objected to my word share. I think he did a whole video on it. Yeah, why I, we can't use the word share, the glory I share with you. Well, I can because parasa alto, together with yourself, right? That's a, that's a sharing semantic. The glory I had, I shared with you. Then it says, before the world was, mm -hmm. parasoi, with you. Before the foundation, I was sharing glory. A creature can't say that. In the Old Testament, Isaiah 42, uh, Yahweh says, I don't share my glory with another. That's mm -hmm. right. Uh, with another well he does with yahweh right and mm -hmm. i think it's a beautiful verse that not only shows distinction but affirms the deity of the son amen amen 100 anything else andrew no we could stay on that alone and that could be the rest of the conversation those are and we'll burn through all the scriptures we have for later so if we want to move to the next segment i'm fine with that if you are yeah, um, actually, so David Russell, God bless his soul. I love my my friend, but he actually kind of brought up a question, and I think I know he's joking, but I think it really hits home to really what we're talking about because if anybody's listening and you're thinking, well, they're just talking about Greek and and, and all of these different things, yeah, that does this really affect my salvation? David brings up this question. He says, complete sinner's guide. Do I have to speak in tongues to be saved? 
And obviously, my answer is no. The Bible's answer is no. No one has to speak in tongues to be saved. For why? We're saved by grace through faith in Christ. So speaking in tongues, it's one thing. But at the same time, this type, this type of ideology, and Andrew and I were speaking about this off of air, but whenever you view God in this way, it really does damage. It really does trickle down to these concepts of you must speak in tongues, you must be water baptized, and, and it just turns into Pelagianism. It turns into a work salvation. It really does. And so that's the danger. So if you're wondering, well, what does all this have to do with the gospel? It has everything. God's nature has everything to do with the gospel. Andrew, you want to comment on on David's funny, but yet at the same time, serious question? That's a perfect segue into the next section, because we were going to talk about the false gospel. Um, So they actually base Matthew 28, 19, on Jesus giving the command to be baptized. But then in Acts 2.38, when Peter says, repent, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, further remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What they'll Mm -hmm. say, because again, Jesus is the name of the unipersonal deity, right? And Father, Son, Spirit are just titles. Well, Acts 2.38, David Bernard, any popular or uh, prolific oneness pastor will say this, Acts 2.38, Jesus' name is the fulfillment of the titles that Jesus spoke in Matthew 28, 19. So the way they interpret Acts 2.38 as their sal- their plan of salvation, they uh, a lot of them are trying to be catchy with their marketing. They'll say GPS, God's mm. plan of salvation. So Acts mm-hmm. 2.38, broken down out of its context in their view, you have to repent of your sins. Then you have to be water baptized, specifically pronouncing in the name of Jesus, not in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And they equate being filled with the Holy Ghost with speaking in tongues as with the beginning of the book of Acts chapter 2, where the Holy Spirit fell and uh, gave them the utterance or gave them the ability to speak in tongues. And what they're doing is they're confusing earthly known tongues that were given by the Spirit for the foreign Jews all across the world gathered for the Feast of Pentecost to be able to understand those speaking in tongues from Jerusalem, that they were known earthly languages that they could understand, and that's what made them marvel. That's what brought them to Acts 2.22 through 36, where Peter preaches the gospel and actually makes distinctions between God the Father and Jesus Christ in that sermon. In verse 37 says, when they were... When they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts, saying, mm-hmm. men and brethren, what, sh- what must we do? Then that's what leads to Acts 2.38. So the, the thing is, you can repent of your sins and mm-hmm. not be baptized in Jesus' name and not speak in tongues. You're still not saved. You can repent of your sins, be water baptized in Jesus' name, which they say is washing away your sins. But mm-hmm. unless you've spoken in tongues, you're still not saved. You have to accomplish or achieve all three parts in order to be saved. And as it is with works-based righteousness, you can lose that salvation and backslide and have to be, quote-unquote, renewed in the spirit. And in the case of prolonged backsliding, if you go away for years or if you leave as a teen and come back as a middle-aged adult, Mm -hmm. some churches will actually demand that you be water baptized again. Mm -hmm. So that's their schema 
And they do it pretty convincingly, right? Because their whole goal is let's take these two verses that really have different context and let's make them mean the same thing or make them align with one another. Now, the context of Matthew 28, 19, they'll point to the fact that when Jesus says baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and Mm -hmm. of as a conjunctive term, uniting them all to one name. And so the name that's shared amongst the Father, Son, Holy Spirit is Yahweh. But in the context of what Jesus is commanding of the disciples in the Great Commission, in Matthew 28, 19, he's giving the baptismal formula. In Acts 2, 38, Peter is saying being, be baptized in the authority or in the stead on behalf of Christ. Okay, mm-hmm. so they actually, they blur those lines and say that the name of Jesus must be the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Those are just titles. Those are just modes. And it's like Acts 4.12 would say, there's um, no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. They really stress all the instances in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 10, uh, 44 through 47, Acts chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, that anytime right. someone was baptized, the text says that they were baptized in the name of the Lord or the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they automatically assume that means the words in the name of Jesus Christ were pronounced now, firstly, we've already tackled the point that the contexts are different between mm-hmm. Jesus's command, Matthew 28 and Acts 2.38. But we also have history. And again, scholarship on our side. We have a, a historical document written in the mid 60s of the first century called the Didache. And in the Didache, the instruction of the disciples is to take the believer out in running water and baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. So I was in a debate. It was a two-on-two debate with two uh, pretty extremist oneness. They, they didn't even want to be called oneness, even though everything they were saying was oneness theology. Interesting. Um, they kept saying, they kept making the ultimatum, show me one time in the New Testament where they were baptized in the name of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I'll change my view right now. And we kept having to say, listen, every time someone was baptized, the words Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were pronounced, but Mm -hmm. that does not take away from the fact that they were doing it in the name of Jesus. Is it because Jesus is the name of the three titles? No, it's because they were giving the baptismal formula the way and in the authority in the name of the way our Lord Jesus had commanded them to do so. Amen. Before I get your um, thoughts, Dr. Aracor, I want to read Matthew 28, um, 18 through 19, or well, actually 28, 18 through 20, and then read Acts uh, 2.38 for those who don't have it in front of them. Uh, Matthew 28, uh, 18 starts out, Then Jesus came up and said to them, "All All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Acts 2.38 says, Peter said to them, Repent, and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children and for all who are far away, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Dr. Galscourt, what is the difference... um, between whenever Jesus said in Matthew 19, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and whenever Peter says, 
baptize them in the name of Jesus. What's the difference there? Right. Well, um, number one, most one is Pentecostal. Well, most Christians for that sake, they're, they're not familiar with the Jewish um, semantic value uh, or meaning of onama in Greek, the, the word name. Same with Hebrew, shem. Um, mm. Very rarely in the Bible, Old and New Testament, does it actually mean, um, sometimes it can, depending on context, but does it actually mean somebody's name or the uh, linguistic symbols, uh, I'm, I'm Edward, you're Tyler. In a, in a semantic, more than not, in a semantic um, mind, when you say the name of something, it meant power or authority, not merely somebody's name. Because the name of Jesus is meaningless if you just, you know, hanging by itself because there was thousands who were called Jesus, many. Um, you know, it's a very common name in first century Palestine. So mm. there's nothing self-vivic in the linguistic symbols, but rather the person uh, behind the name, right? Um, the name simply is equated to power authority. David says in First um, Samuel 17, 45 to Goliath, you come with a spear, a javelin, a sword. I come in the name of Yahweh. He wasn't saying that, hey, my name's Yahweh, and I got another Yahweh. He wasn't saying that. He came in the power of authority. Same with Acts, uh, I believe, chapter 4, when the leaders asked the apostles, but they said, by what name or authority do you come in? Mm -hmm. um, so when we, when we import a semantic, the semantic of, of Onama, the word name, um, here's what we have in Matthew and Acts. We have the same thing. They were the Father, Son, Holy Spirit are under or into the authority and power of Yahweh. The three persons are differentiated there, but the name brands the three persons together. In Acts, and you know, I get there's a question: Why is why don't we find the Trinitarian formula in Acts? Well, first, that's somewhat of a uh, loaded question because that's assuming we don't because it's not stated, it must not be there. Right. There's two views. Um, I'm not gonna take time to give both views, but one of the views is in Matthew 28, 19, Jesus was sending his disciples to nations who were worshiping rocks. You know, They had no knowledge of anything. Contra Acts, everyone that was baptized was either a, a Jew who at least had a concept, false, but a concept of the one God, of a one God, creator of all things. They had a concept of the Father, concept. Um, or God-fearing Greeks. So the emphasis was on Christ. So what we have in the name of Jesus, mm -hmm. being baptized in the name of Jesus, is defining the kind of baptism. Mm -hmm. uh, the kind. It was under the power, into the power and authority of Christ. I think they would have used the Trinitarian formula. There's nowhere in Acts that tells us specifically, clearly, that in the name of Jesus was an audible formula. But even if it was... Even if it was, I would say the difference is the emphasis was on Christ in Acts, whereas in Matthew 28, 19, the emphasis is on nations, go out mm -hmm. to all the nations who had no idea about anything. They're worshiping reptiles and rocks. Um, but none of those passages teach a modalistic understanding. Even if you grant the premise in the name of Jesus, that was some kind of audible formula, it still doesn't prove oneness. And I, I think you alluded to it, uh, Andrew, in Matthew 20, 19, their argument is, hey, uh, the word name there, onama, the word, well, name is singular. Yep. If it was, if 
Jesus was some kind of Trinity or speaking of the Trinity, surely it'd be plural. There's three persons like multiple names. Yeah. Yeah. But that's, you know, the name, it, in fact, if he would have used the plural there, my goodness, we, we would conform to Mormon doctrine because that would denote three uh, separate gods or separate mm. separation and somehow, but no, the name is, in fact, we see an example, the same word, the same singular word there, Anama and the Septuagint in Genesis uh, 11, four, when the world, you know, everyone that was living were making a tower about uh, in a tower, the tower of Babel, they're making this tower. And they said, <clears throat> let us make a name for ourselves. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so you have the singularity of the word there, but only if you don't know the semantic mm -hmm. understand semantic, semantic understanding, you're going to confuse the name with somebody's name. Right on. So like the Tower of Babel, then that one name is referring to multiple <clears throat> persons in that instance, right? Tower of Babel. It's extremely difficult for a oneness person to to grapple with that passage because name means multiple people. In Inter that passage. Very interesting. So so to bring this maybe like into a 21st century context and to see if I'm understanding you right, would it be synonymous to say to if if a if a cop says to someone stop in the name of the law you're saying stop by the authority of what the law stands for in some sense right like by the authority of that law is that kind of the same or is it different in a jewish context no in fact i use that i use that sometimes because okay. we're we're acknowledging the power and authority of the law that's how the jews use the term name i'm not saying every time but that's generally how it's used. And that's why we see, look, it's not going to be, there's again, there, there's nothing significant about the actual given name, Jesus. It's only significant. The person's only significant, not his, he could have been called John. It doesn't matter. His name will be called Jesus because he saves his, the sins from his people, but others were called Jesus or Jesus uh, or Yeshua. Um, so there wasn't anything significant about those linguistic symbols but rather the authority and power of the man of the God man is what we're looking at. Stop in the name of the law and the, and the authority or the power of the law. I use that, but I think it, it's well, I think examples both in the old and new Testament, these semantic um, value of the word name. Right on Andrew, anything else that you would like to add to Matthew 28, um, 19 or acts, or would you like to just go ahead and move on to the next verse? I'm good to go if you gentlemen are. Yeah, I'm I'm good, brother. Go ahead. Take it away. So it looks like what we had next, and we had already touched on this briefly, our origins of of oneness doctrine, um, going back to the late 2nd century and early 3rd century, um, where modalistic monarchianism came on the scene. Some of the proponents of that and the twisting, again, from this book that I had to read from in the Oneness Bible College that I attended and took their church history class, um, mm -hmm. it actually makes these heretics that were condemned to appear to be the heroes that adhered to one God theology or apostolic theology. And then the, the church fathers, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Polycarp, Ignatius, it makes them all apostate heretics so to lay this out and i will admit most of the time in my apologetics to oneness church history never comes up so mm -hmm. it's the weakest leg that i stand on it's not something i'm as faceted in um, but it's agreed 
by and large, that Noetus was the first proponent of teaching that God is one person and Father, Son, and Spirit are sort of these different masks that he wears. Um, Hippolytus, Tertullian, the people writing against the heretics actually claim Noetus as being puffed up in being vexed by a certain spirit. So he's very prideful, very loud, very brash. And he's even claimed to have considered himself or claimed himself to be Moses and Aaron Mm -hmm. was his brother. So he was under the guise. He was beguiled by a demonic spirit. And when he was examined on his doctrine, Mm -hmm. um, he was excommunicated from the church, rightly so. Now, Praxius and Sibelius, they also held to... Uh, modalistic monarchianism and another doctrine that's fundamental to all of this this is where the blasphemy really sets in i think it's called patripassianism so mm. patripassianism those two words broken up in latin patri father passus suffered so they're saying that the father himself coming into ex- human existence as jesus christ that mm-hmm. makes the one who suffered on the cross the father and that's mm-hmm. that's damnable so no like- one would have mm-hmm. would have believed that in the first century of the church mm-hmm. um and so for these proponents of oneness these oneness historians mm-hmm. if you even want to be as gracious to grant that title to them they're making this seem like that was the norm and when the evil roman catholic pagan movement started to surface that mm-hmm. they tried to stamp the truth of oneness out Mm. So, Patripassianism, the father suffered. We really see that, actually, if you've ever seen the movie The Shack. We see whenever the the father, the the black lady, um, hold her... I, I forget the scene because I've only seen the movie once, but she holds out her wrist, and you see the nail scars on, on her wrist showing, kind of implying that she suffered just like Jesus did on the cross, and that is nowhere, nowhere found in Scripture. Um, Dr. Dalcor, is there anything that you'd like to add to what Andrew is saying about Patripassianism or uh, modalistic monarchianism? Yeah, it's really interesting, uh, Noetis, um, which may have yeah. been the first modal. Uh, we have evidence, though, from Justin Martyr that that, that, that view was um, in a limited sense, but that view was still out there. Mm-hmm. And Justin speaks of those who say Jesus is the father and it's heretical and so on and so forth. Uh, again, first and foremost, the early church rejected modalism. There is no modalistic council. There is no modalistic creeds. There is no modalistic church. Now, to pull up isolated cases, for instance, at the Council of Nicaea, and I know that the oneness people, most of them are ahistorical. They'll do this. They'll say, well, well, Richie said it was all oneness at the Council of Nicaea. I, I didn't know. I think he mentioned that in the debate. I, I wasn't sure how to respond to that. Mm-hmm. He's got oneness. a video saying that the Nicene Creed is perfectly oneness, like a oneness Pentecostal could subscribe to the Nicene Creed if they wanted to. He's the only one that feels that way because Scott, nobody that can, if you read the content, first of all, the Trinity did not start in Nicaea. It was already established. That's why you don't have the word Trinity at the council. When people say it's a Trinitarian council, well, show me from Athanasius, from from Alexandria, from Eusebius, show me a document that even mentions the word Trinity. That the triune concept of God had already been um, been established hundreds of years before, um, starting from the second century, starting e- even alluding to Matthew twenty-eight nineteen and, and Didache and um, all the church fathers who quoted Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, the Trinitarian formula. But the fact of the matter is, at Nicaea. Yeah, there was a couple oneness there. Just like if you go to most churches, you're going to find a couple heretics in the church. 
to be sure. <laughs> but, you know, I, I like with, uh, with um, I think writing around the early third century, around 260, 262, Gregory Thaumaturgus. He said this. He said, some people treat the Holy Trinity in an awful manner. He says, where, where, uh, wherefore we clear ourselves of Sibelius, who says the Father and Son are the same person. He says this, look, this is before the Council of Nicaea. There's a, a cadre of patristic evidence that make statements clear, more, more clear than a lot of teachers today where they affirm the Trinity before Nicaea. He says, going on, he says, we believe that the three persons, namely the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are declared to possess the one Godhead. And there's countless wow. passages like that. One of the greatest um, or authoritative patristic authorities, J.N.D. Um, J.N. Davison Kelly, um, or J.N.D. Kelly, he says this, he says, the reader should notice how deeply the conception of the plurality of divine persons was imprinted in the apostolic tradition and popular faith. This is a, this is a patristic authority. No one disagrees with them. There's no patristic authority that says, oh, the whole church was oneness. Um, you look at the seven ecumenical councils. They were all, the, their first premise ontologically of who God was, where the doctrines flowed from, were Trinitarian. They were Trinitarian. There's no oneness council. All of those councils were Trinitarian in nature. The early church, again, rejected uh, with Hippolytus, Tertullian, um, uh, Dionysius of Rome and Dionysius of, of Alexandria. They all wrote letters. They all wrote statements rejecting Sibelius, rejecting whatever form, because keep in mind, there was two forms of modalism historically. There was monogamistic um, or simultaneous modalism, yeah. which taught that the, which most oneness today believe in, Yes. That all three modes can simultaneously exist. Bernard's, that's how he explains the baptism of Christ. So what? Yeah. You know, God, Jesus projected his voice, you know. Then mm -hmm. there's uh, successive modalism or oneness that teach. And I think uh, we, we looked at that statement. This is what Sibelius taught. First, there was the father in creation. That role evaporated. Then Jesus was the son in redemption. Then when his work was done, now Jesus is the Holy Spirit. You know that, so it's successive modalism, but not a whole lot of folks hold to that. In fact, majority, um, I don't know anyone else who hold to successive. There is a cult. There is a non-Christian cult. I think it's the um, is it the Way, the Way International, who hold to successive modalism, where Jesus is only the Holy Spirit today. But T.D. Jakes wow. quotes T.D. Jakes quotes Sibelius. You know, he really does. And I would always, um, we talked about, just to make one fast point on baptism, uh, baptismal regeneration. Mm. But not all oneness hold to that, though. UPC does, UPCI, United Pentecostal Church International. Um, this is a very damning doctrine because it separates the person of Christ from his work. Whether you're Eastern Orthodox, whether you're Roman Catholic, whether you're the International Church of Christ or Church of Christ, they all believe that the work, the man work, yeah, it's obedience, but it's a work. And I, I punctuate that because I've had a debate with a Christian, with the Church of Christ guy, and he actually said baptism is not a work. It's an act of faith. And I'm thinking, 
wait a second. The, the word work in English and Greek means the same thing to something that takes energy. In fact, uh, ergon is the term for works, something that takes energy. Are you telling me when I, st I, I was baptized, when I stand up and, and um, I was 11 years old at the at a seat of Baptist church and I had to stand up, I had to put my hands like this, I had to do this, I had to say a bunch of words, I had to hold my breath, and then when I came out, I had to shake my hair. You tell me that doesn't require energy. Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, Church of Christ, they are what they do, they deny the sufficiency of the cross as the alone means of salvation, as the cause of justification. It's Jesus's work and the work of water baptism or something else. So they separate. It doesn't matter if you hold to Nicene doctrine. It doesn't matter if you hold to the Trinity. If you reject the work of Christ, that's simply a heresy. You don't have the Christ that I worship who mm -hmm. said, you know, it is finished. You don't have the Christ that Paul preached, who said he became our righteousness. He became our sanctification. He became our redemption. That's not the Jesus of Greek or of, of Eastern Orthodox or Roman Catholics. It's a different Christ. So I just say we can't separate just because you believe in the Trinity. You know, it, it doesn't mean you're 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 non-heretical, because if you hold to a Judaizer type doctrine, you're simply lost because you don't have the Christ of Scripture. Right. And, to, and what's sad about that is I see a lot of people. So um, I got my start on TikTok. I'm kind of in the middle of a really long sabbatical from that. But there are even people in the reformed camp that would say, as long as you're Trinitarian or as long as your baptism's Trinitarian, you can be Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox. You're my brother in Christ. And I'm like, well, no, they damn the gospel. They don't think justification is by faith alone. And guess what? They anathematize those of us who do. And to clarify your statement on the Trinity, um, when you said it doesn't matter if you believe in the Trinity, I think I think Tyler and I understood what you said, but just for the viewers, we think belief in the Trinity is absolutely essential. But what you were saying in that context was, so what if you believe in the Trinity, if you get if you separate the, the person in the work of Christ? So any viewer, uh, I don't want to speak on your behalf, uh, Dr. Dalcor, but I think there might be someone later that says, so it doesn't matter if you believe in the Trinity because uh, well, it, it, it people doesn't, yeah, what, what I said, it does. If you reject the cross work of Christ, it doesn't matter what you believe, right? If That's you right. reject the cross work of Christ as the alone sufficient ground of justification, it it's meaningless. If you hold to Nicene doctrine, it's just meaningless. If you say, I believe in the Trinity because you really don't right. you have a different son. That's not the Trinity presented in scripture. It's a That's different right. concept. It's an anathematized, as Paul calls it. That kind of goes back to what you were saying earlier about building on your foundation. Get your foundation solid, then build on it. Because if you go and start, you know, even for Calvinism, for example, right? If you go run off into Reformed theology, but you don't have a precise understanding of the gospel, it doesn't matter if you call your Calvin, yourself a Calvinist or not. You're not saved at that point. You know what I mean? What is up, ladies and gents? Tyler here. Hey, if you like this conversation, it is not over yet. We have part two uploaded over at CompleteCenters.com. So if you like this discussion with Dr. Edward Dalcor and Andrew Elliott over Oneness Pentecostalism, you've got to finish the conversation. CompleteCenters.com. Check out part two. Do it now. See ya. God bless.